This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. There's really two issues or two problems connected with God and foreknowledge and God's causal influence. So let's think first a little bit about the problem. Then I'll mention some preliminary points that are helpful for thinking about the problem or problems. And then we'll look a little bit at foreknowledge and then the issue of omnipotence, okay? So first, the problem. Okay, for Thomas Aquinas, for basically all Christians uh, up until not long ago, God knows our future free acts and causes without fail everything that happens, including our future free acts. God is eternal. God doesn't change. God causes. God knows everything. Typical attributes of God. And then also, more or less believed by at least Christians, our free acts are incapable of being coerced by any cause. So coercion is compatible with freedom. And our future free acts as future acts are unknowable. This is a different issue, but they tend to think that we can't know future contingents, at least not with certitude. And so we've got a problem, right? All right. God knows that our future free acts will happen. Does that mean you can know future free acts? And also, if he knows them ahead of time, can they be free? And the second issue, God can do everything. This is the will. Can he force me to be good? Can he even force me to be bad? Right? This is something that Calvin discusses in the Institutes and Luther in some places. They want to say that God causes sin in a way similar to how he causes good acts. And Calvin criticizes Augustine on this point. Right? Whereas for Thomas Aquinas, in uh, the De Milo question six, he writes, what is coerced is as contrary to what is natural as to what is voluntary. So coercion comes from outside. Since the source of both the natural and the voluntary is internal, and the source of what is coerced is external. So there's something about being a natural movement or a free movement that means the motion has to come from the thing. It can't come from something else, right? So I I had a cousin who used to, he would grab my hand and he would hit me in the head. Well, he'd hit me in the head with my own hand and he'd say, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. Right, was I really hitting myself? No, okay. Coercion. And so if you look, both of these problems are brought up nicely in De Malo, Thomas's disputed questions, question 16, article 7, and the response to the 15th objection. This De Malo is interesting for us because it's about something that people used to do. I'm not sure if they do it anymore, learning about the future through demons, right? The idea is the demons, they're brighter than us, so they can predict things better. They can look and see what they, they know what's happening. But like us, they, 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 they're finite, they're not eternal, they're in time. Things are future to the demons. So they can know a lot of things better than us, but you know, what really can they know about the future? So the issue of God's foreknowledge comes up in the question of demonic foreknowledge. All right. And also you have the issue of Stoicism. Cicero, writing about human freedom, was concerned with Stoic necessity and this idea that everything that happens, happens necessarily. And so what is it about the human free acts? Do human free acts happen necessarily? Are they part of providence? Is there part of providence that's outside of it? Well, philosophically, most Christians believe that providence has to cover everything, including free acts. And also uh, Christians 
as well believe that God is omnipotent, right? Hairs of the head are numbered and all that, sparrows falling to the ground. And so you have this problem of divine providence. Um, and you know, in the beginning, in the first few sentences of that text one in your handout, it says, this providence does not take away the contingency of future events, neither on account of the certitude of divine cognition, so there we have the knowledge, the omniscience, nor on account of the efficacy of the divine will. Here we have the omnipotence. Two issues. So what I'll try to explain tonight, as best I can, is that the difficulties surrounding human freedom and divine omnipotence and omniscience usually result from misunderstanding the difference between divine knowledge and human knowledge and primary and secondary causality. These issues become difficult when we, especially when we try to take our notions of knowledge and apply them to God's knowing, and we take created notions and even human notions of causation and apply them to God's causation. And if we look at Thomas Aquinas, we see this very clearly. St. Thomas says that God's omnipotence is compatible with the infallible production of free acts. So the acts are free and contingent, but they result from God's will infallibly. And the second point will be that God's knowledge is eternal and not about what is future to him. So God doesn't properly speaking have foreknowledge because these acts are not in the future to God. And so that's the introduction of the problem involving omnipotence and foreknowledge and free acts. So the first part, we're going to look at preliminary points about God's knowledge and will. That will help us think a little bit about how God's knowledge and God's willing are different from ours, or indeed the knowledge and willing of any creatures. And then we'll look more carefully after covering these preliminary points at the foreknowledge issue and then at the omnipotence issue, okay? So first, preliminary points about God's knowledge and will. God is omniscient, but how does he know everything? Our knowledge is caused, God's knowledge is causal. For instance, I want to know how many people are in the room. I can look around, right? Do I make that up? No, things in the room cause what's in me. I want to learn about human nature. I look around, I think, okay, you've got people, they've got eyes, ears, so that's what humans are like. They don't have obvious ways of eating or breathing, but maybe that will need further explanation. Maybe I just have to look closer, right? And so my knowledge is caused by the people that I'm observing. So what is this then with God? Do we cause knowledge in God, right? Like I might say, you know, God, um, uh, last night, I only drank uh, six beers rather than 12. And God says, I didn't know you had it in you. Good job, right? You surprised me. All right, do we cause new knowledge in God or change him, something like that? No, because then we have a very different God. I think this is something to worry about. And I was unaware that this was actually a problem until somebody brought to my attention, there's a lot of criticisms of classical theism. I guess in the blogosphere, which I don't know very well. And basically they want to replace the God of Christianity with like a, a, a big human being or something, right? That changes, that's influenced by things. Um, well, at least that's not Thomas's notion of God. It's hard to know how God, such a God could explain anything and why you would arrive or believe in the existence of such a God. But at any rate, God, is not cause or 
affected by us in any way. You might say, well, some of us are Catholic. Okay, yes, in the Incarnation, the second person of the Holy Trinity died on the cross, walked around, healed. But that's, properly speaking, God doing those acts since it's a divine person, but it's the human nature. It's not as God. Okay? God's human nature changes. In that case, they assumed human nature. But the person, the divine person, is always the same. At any rate, so our knowledge is caused, God's knowledge is causal. There's a nice passage in an early disputed question by Thomas Aquinas on this issue. He says, in all knowledge, there is an assimilation of the knower to the known. So I'm thinking about trees or cactuses, and there's some sort of way in which I'm, in my mind at least, something in the cactus is somehow present in me, not physically, uh, right? We're not putting the cactus in my eyes or in my brain or in my intellect, but there's some sort of contact, some effect. So there's some sort of assimilation. There's a causal connection. Some people reduce knowledge to causal connections. Thomas, to the best of my knowledge, does not do that, but there is a causal connection. Hence, either the knowledge is the cause of the thing known, or the thing known is the cause of knowledge, but both are caused by one cause. Okay, so maybe I know something, so I cause it, like a cake, like a cake, or uh, the thing known is the cause of knowledge. I look at the cake, oh, there's a cake, or there's some third thing that causes both. God, somebody, an angel makes a cake and then puts the image in my mind, I don't know. Okay. It cannot be said, however, that what is known by God is the cause of his knowledge, for things are temporal, and his knowledge is eternal. And what is temporal cannot be the cause of anything eternal. The temporal changes, right? at least in place, in and out of existence. It goes from being potentially something to actual Similarly, it cannot be said that both are caused by one cause because nothing can be caused in God. Hence, there is left only one possibility. His knowledge is the cause of things. God, we exist because, and God knows about us how, because we are caused by him. We don't cause things to happen in God. That's how God knows us. That's how he knows singulars. The, the cause-effect relationship is one way, not two. Right. Now, this is hard for us to imagine because of what? Well, that's not how we know. God is different from created things. This isn't how animals know with their sense knowledge, other animals, without reason. This isn't even how angels know. Okay? It's hard to talk about God. But you run into problems if you start applying things from creatures, concepts and ideas that we use when discussing creatures to God. So that's God's knowledge. God's knowledge is causal. Our knowledge is caused, at least our speculative knowledge. Second point, God is omnipotent. What does that mean? That means his will is absolutely efficacious, right? So I'm trying to give a decent talk, but who knows what might happen, right? I may fall down uh, from too much coffee and have a heart problem. I may just be too weak to obtain the effect, okay? God's will is not like that. So if you look at text three on page two, since God's will is absolutely efficacious, it follows not only that the things God wills to be affected are in fact affected, but also that they are affected in the mode in which God wills them to be affected. And he wills things to happen in different ways, we see. God wills some things to be affected necessarily and others contingently, so that there might be order among things for the sake of the completeness of the universe. Let's pause there because we haven't talked about contingency and necessity yet. 
Okay? But just it's very clear that whatever God causes happens, whatever he wills to cause happens. And this is uh, whether it's something contingent or something necessary. And we'll go into what that means later. Now, just a brief point about God's will. When I talk about God's will, there are many different distinctions that can be brought up. Um, there's metaphorical will, like a signified will, which is maybe a command to do something. Right? God tells us, do not steal, do not commit adultery. Okay? We'll do it anyway, but uh, God tells us not to do it. We can describe that as God's will. Now, you can talk about his will more strictly speaking, and then you kind of have an antecedent will, which just kind of describes not considering the particulars, but human nature is such a way it's protected in this way rather than that. And then you have the consequent will, which considers all the circumstances together. You know, it's good and God wills for little deer to flourish out in the Arizona desert, but then the cougar comes with a mountain lion and rips the deer open. And what do we have? The circle of life. Okay, so in that particular instance, it's good for the deer to die. For the sake of the cougar, I might be getting into controversial things here, but it's also for the universe, okay? I don't know. I'm too old for the Lion King, but you are probably too young. Some of you may know it, though. But there's a circle of life, evidently, where things die and come back. Okay. So when we're talking about God's will being efficacious, always fulfilled, we mean his will properly speaking, and not just kind of considering things generally or absolutely, but consider actually what he causes to be done. You might say, right, God willed us not to fornicate, but have you ever been on campus? Okay, right, not that kind of will. Right. That's the signified will. So those are preliminary points about God. God's knowledge, which is eternal and causal, and God's will, which strictly speaking, considered uh, in particular, is always fulfilled. Human wills. Human knowledge, as we've seen, is caused, or sometimes it's causal, with practical knowledge. And then we often choose different means to something, right? I'm going to uh, try to stay awake during the talk, so I can either drink coffee, maybe start on the brownies early, get some sugar. There's different possibilities, right? I can freely choose. So what is this freedom? It's compatible with coercion, but coercion is uh, incompatible with any movement from kind of outside or something else. So when we talk about free acts, we just, just mean freedom from external coercion, like somebody taking a rock and throwing it up, right? and then the rock naturally wants to come back down. No, we mean uh, freedom even from necessitation. We don't choose to have the brownie or the coffee in the way that a rock falls to the earth. And that's what we need for freedom. And that's what we need to kind of uh, blame acts for people, right? People were just what chose to have coffee or brownies the way that uh, rocks fell downwards. We'd have a hard time blaming them or praising them or punishing them, right? We don't say to the rock, you've been bad. I think you don't even say that to the dog, technically. I mean, or most properly speaking, okay? Or small children, properly speaking. But some people think that I let them kids do whatever. Okay, so. But, you know, they aren't punished. It's not the same thing as a full-grown adult. So it's contingent, but it's a type of contingency. 
Now, what is contingent? Thomas doesn't use contingent in our sense sometimes. There's things that just might or might not come about. Sometimes you hear all beings are contingent except for God, the sole necessary being. For Thomas, there are a lot of necessary beings, okay? All the angels, necessary. That means they can't come in and out of existence. They necessarily exist. It's nothing to explain to them come apart. You can't cut one in two. Human beings, uh, well, our bodies you can cut in two. It's a little bit harder with our intellects. Uh, also, he thinks the heavenly bodies are necessary, right? The stars are moving around. Many of you are astronomy majors, so maybe I'll try to work astronomy in. Okay, do we now think that they are made of separate matter that's eternal and never changes? No, but it was a pretty good explanation for the time, and they knew that it wasn't demonstrative, but they thought it was so close to being certain. Right? Well, some people, Thomas thought that it was close to being certain. Occam thought there was the same matter up there. But at any rate, uh, these things are necessary. They move around in circles forever. No beginning, no end, except maybe at creation. Well, definitely at creation, if you think there was creation in time. All right, so these are necessary. There are necessary truths about essences, which I think arguably go back to God's essence. Okay. Whereas um, below the moon, things are contingent. They come in and out of existence. I think arguably they're unpredictable. Thomas disagree over that later on. But it's clear that there is at least chance and fortune, so there's not one line of causality. They think below the moon you have changeable matter, so the heavenly bodies move things around a bit, and we get different, I don't know, weather and different things like that, even different groups of people. And Thomas's disciple Ptolemy of Lucas says, why are the Sicilians so bad? He's from Lucca, and they have a free republic. And in Sicily, they always have tyrants. Well, it's the stars moving things, giving them their climate and their kind of bodies, and that's what makes Sicilians need tyranny, right? Unlike the people from his town. Okay, I'm not saying that's true. Don't report me or cancel me. <laughs> I don't mean to be... Uh, this is a historical thing about Ptolemy of Lucca's views, okay? Just to illustrate necessity and contingency. You have contingency in the world below the spheres, but it's all influenced by the spheres. But then you have the problem. Can you predict future events? Can you predict them with devils or the stars? Um, Aristotle in medieval logic, it's not quite like our contemporary logic. I love teaching symbolic logic. There's a lot you can do with it. It's one of my favorite classes. Um, but you wonder, what is it really about sometimes? Uh, people talk as if there are these propositions. What are they? Who thinks them? Are they immaterial? Do they exist in the same way that people exist? Right? Some people think they are mathematical objects. At any rate, uh, for Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, basically, statements or judgments people make the very same statements can be true, sometimes false at others, contingent statements. So something like Socrates sits is contingent. Is it always true? You might say, what's he doing now? He's dead. No, they just use these names. Like I have students, my grad students get confused because Scotus talks about uh, so uh, Plato, the father of Socrates, and they're thinking, but he wasn't Socrates' father. No, it's just an you know, they just use these because they're names. So Socrates sits. When is that true? When Socrates is sitting. So for them, you have the same statement being true uh, when Socrates sits, and the same statement is false when he stands. All right. So it's made true by what exists at the time, by beings at the time. And what is it about contingent events that I said before? They are contingent and not necessary. They change. So there's nothing now making them true in the future. Aristotle's example is the sea battle will happen tomorrow. 
He can say that. It's about tomorrow. But right now, there's nothing making it true. Now, different people will interpret this in different ways. Some will say, well, it can be true if it's likely to happen, but it's not determinately true. Some people say it's neither true nor false. Right? There are a lot of different options here. But the point, whatever option you choose, there's nothing now making it determinately true. And so these future events then, it's not that they're true and we can't know that these statements, but there's nothing making these statements true at all. So the statements are made true and false by what they're about, the, the, the beings that they're about, and there's no being that they're about now. If you talk about the heavenly bodies, you can predict them. Why? Because what will happen is in their causes now. Now, it might be that God annihilates the world or something, but given the normal natural order of everything, you can see what's going to happen with the heavenly bodies. You're going to know fire heats. Okay? They think that's the property of fire. Fire heats, water cools. Uh, I think at least we can agree fire is hot. And fire heats water when we, when we make our tea. Okay. So, what you have then is they can't be known. It's not just that they're unknowable to us, but they are unknowable because there's nothing to know. So God is going to have to know these things, but not as future. Okay. So let's take a look then at this text one again. Remember I said this text has both problems in it, text one. Divine knowledge is related to future contingents just as our eyes related to the contingents which are present, as has been said. And just as we most certainly see that Socrates sits while he sits, although neither is it simply speaking necessary on account of this, so even from the fact that God sees everything that comes about in themselves, the contingency of things is not taken away. So somehow God is going to be seeing everything that happens. Why? Because he's eternal. He's not part of this change of time or things like time. Thomas thinks that the, the material beings, they don't have motion the way that we have, so they don't have time that, like we have, but they have a before and after. And so you do have before and after if not uh, motion, properly speaking, okay? And so God's, since he causes everything and he's not affected by anything, he's eternal, he's outside of time. So creatures know future effects, contingent effects, either in themselves, which we can't, or in their causes. Now, some things are determinately true in their causes, like fire heats, humans are rational. Others are indeterminately in their causes, such as free human actions. So we can't know them, at least with certitude. And that's where the problem with the devils comes in. That's what this question 16 is about. Because they know things really well, so they can predict things a lot better than we can. But properly speaking, they don't know the future like God does. Why? They aren't in the same time as we are for Thomas, but when they're in before and after, and they can't, they've got no access to you know, the beatific vision and God telling them it's going to happen. I mean, if God tells them, they can know, but they don't see it. They don't see it at all. So... You have a kind of necessity. I see that Socrates sits, therefore he sits. Uh, and similarly, there's a necessity. If God knows that Socrates will sit, then he will sit tomorrow. But that's not because there's something about Socrates making that have to be true tomorrow. Or there's some other created cause making it so Socrates has to sit tomorrow. Okay. It's because even though there's nothing to know in the world now about what Socrates, when he'll be sitting tomorrow, 
Um, God is not now looking at that as if it's future. So these future contingents do not yet exist, so the statements about them are true or false. That's because they aren't going to exist, also they aren't present in their causes, the way that necessary effects might be. So as future, future contingents cannot be known with certitude. So let's take a look at this text number two. Those things that become actual in time are known by us successfully in time, but they are known by God in eternity, which is beyond time. Thus, since we know future contingents insofar as they are contingent, they cannot be certain to us. We might conject things about them. I know usually Socrates sits down for lunch, he has lunch at noon. But they are certain only to God, whose active understanding exists in eternity and beyond time. Similarly, someone who is traveling along the road does not see those who come after him, or someone who is viewing the whole road from a height sees all the travelers on the road at once. Right. So it's not just the devils, it's also astronomy, astrology. So it's very hard to kind of predict individual people, but they think you can predict groups pretty well from the climate and the stars and whatnot. And so, you know, there's a reason why the Sicilians are the way that they are. We can predict what they're going to do. Uh, mostly bad. Okay. So why? All right. Now, I mean, obviously this is false, but the principle is interesting that human acts are more predictable as a group than they are for individuals first. Secondly, even insofar as they're predictable, you don't have the same certitude that you would have about necessary uh, events and necessary effects. So you can make predictions about the future from the past, the way that devils know these events a little bit and their causes. Uh, the way for Thomas, we can predict the, the uh, things that happen through the heavenly bodies. But we don't have the certitude because they aren't true or false yet our judgments about them. Only from eternity are they true or false. So that's one problem, right? If God had foreknowledge of them, then they wouldn't be contingent or free. And so you have to say, well, God doesn't have foreknowledge of them. This is not looking at it from behind like we are. He's all Everything's present to him. So that's the knowledge issue. The, the third point, right? The first point, there were some preliminary remarks Secondly, I wanted to look at God's knowledge. Third, I wanted to look at contingency and necessity. Here we're talking about contingency and necessity with respect to causation. Fire always is going to heat. Other things happen always or for the most part, like Bunny rabbits generate other bunny rabbits. Occasionally you get a monster. Monster not in the sense of something Halloween-y. Monster in the sense of something going wrong. But for the most part, things are going to achieve their end in nature. Not human beings because of original sin and the difficulty of the last end. But mostly things in nature act the way that they're supposed to. And there's a kind of necessity either a very strict necessity or an always and for the most part necessity. So let's take a look again at this text number one, part three. And on the part of the will, this is towards the end, it should be considered that the divine will is universally the cause of being and universally of everything that follows it. And so of necessity and contingency. For he himself is above the order of the necess necessary and of the contingent, just as above the whole being of creatures. Right. So rabbits cause other rabbits, but they aren't the cause of this necessity. They're just the cause of this or that rabbit. Thomas Aquinas thinks the sun is also in some way the cause of the form and this permanence. So we have a kind of... Uh, 
order within the causes. And the contingency in nature happens when you have different things kind of uh, running into each other, sometimes due to defects in matter, right? Something's going on with the sperm of the father rabbit, or um, sometimes from intersecting lines of causality, fire's heating, but the water comes from somewhere and cools something. Uh, you have different things going on. And then human freedom, you have something else, not uh, contingency from matter, not contingency from conflicting lines of causality, but contingency from the ability of the human intellect to consider different, different options. Okay? But at any rate, within these causal orders, it's considering the two proximate causes, more or less, or the secondary causes that will help us identify whether these are necessary or contingent. Okay. So fire heating, well, that's what fire does, it heats. The heavenly bodies moving, well, that's where they'll be tomorrow. Uh, contingent things, so we know rabbits usually produce for other rabbits with one head. Occasionally something goes wrong and there's a two-headed rabbit. It doesn't happen very often, but it happens. But God is not a cause of a rabbit the way the rabbit is. Now this is what happens when people start opposing Thomas Aquinas' view uh, very soon afterwards. They start thinking of these free actions as cause, like the way maybe two horses might pull a cart. So you've got different causes, the divine cause and the human cause working together. But Thomas is very clear that you've got God's causality is completely different from the created causes. God's relationship to human free acts is not like that of my relationship to this paper as I'm waving it around. Okay? You've got different, well, I mean, you've got my will, but, okay, but if you're just talking about my hand moving it, you've got movement in place, and uh, there you have it. And this holds this, just if you know what hands are and what paper is, you know that that's going to happen. All right, my hands have created cause more or less of the same order of that thing. Now, abstract from my will. Okay. So let's continue with this passage. And therefore, necessity and contingency in things is not distinguished through a relation to the divine will, which is a common cause, but through comparison to created causes which the divine will proportionally ordain to the effects, that namely there be untransmutable causes of necessary effects and transmutable causes of contingent effects. So what you have there is that God's will is efficacious, his providence applies to everything, the necessary and the contingent. When we talk about necessary and contingency, we aren't talking about contingent offense with respect to God's will. That's not where our notions of necessity and contingency come from. That's not how they apply. Necessity and contingency applies to created, uh, well, in this case, I'm talking about causation, uh, created uh, causal, ca causes and effects. So that's, Within the created order, we look and see, is that a necessary cause, a per se cause, or is that a uh, contingent? And again, Thomas will disagree over whether, aside from human freedom, there's not some sort of uh, determinism ultimately in the natural world uh, anyway, but at least for human freedom, it's contingent and completely un unpredictable but that's because the human actions are caused by the intellect as the uh, formal cause, giving the active structure, and then as the will, as the efficient cause. So you move back to the will, the kind of self-causing. 
ultimately moved by God, but in the created order, not moved by necessity by anything else other than the will. So what you have in this providential order, I think it's actually indeterminate with respect to the natural world too, but um, I'm not certain Thomas thinks this, so it seems likely to me. The, you have, uh, you have providence governing everything, including different kinds of things. Some things are necessary, some things are contingent. Providence governing both. The necessity and contingency not being about God. Remember what I said before, what are some of the problems? We take our notions, for instance, of knowledge and we apply them to God. We start thinking, no, God is in time looking at the future. Or God's knowledge is caused like ours. But since God, there is no future to God, and since his knowledge is entirely causal, we get into all sorts of problems. Because we're taking uh, notions that work perfectly well, talking about creatures, and then we apply them to God, and they, we know that they can't apply that way to him because that's not what he's like. So similarly with respect to necessity and contingency. We seem to, although it's complicated now more than for Thomas, we seem to have a notion of necessity and contingency among created causes. We at least seem to know what causation is. I think we do, but some philosophers will say we don't. But at any rate, in ordinary speech, we certainly do. And I think, to me, it seems unproblematic to say that my uh, stove's heating the water. Okay. Uh, so we have that. And the problem is that we start thinking of God as being like the fire in my stove. And once we do that, we're in big trouble. And so there's always a mystery when it comes to omnipotence and human freedom, but you want to be careful about where the mystery is, right? There are certain things that we can know about God very imperfectly. There are certain things that we can know about human freedom. We can't picture how they're compatible, but we can figure out which notions go wrong and why. There's a nice passage, I think I have time, from the commentary on the metaphysics on this. I didn't include it here, but I think it's pretty good. Because Thomas seems to be explaining Aristotle, but he's talking about divine providence. Now he writes, now as has been pointed out, this is in the uh, commentary in book six of the metaphysics, uh, Lexio two. Being as being has God himself as its cause. Hence, just as being itself is subject to divine providence, so also are all the accidents of being as being among which are found necessity and contingency. So here, when we're talking about divine providence and contingent events, we're talking about them not in relation to God, but as properties of the beings themselves. Right? The humans, their acts. Therefore, it belongs to divine providence not only to produce a particular being, but also to give it contingency or necessity. For insofar as God wills to give contingency or necessity to anything, he is prepared for certain intermediate causes from which it follows either necessity or contingency, whether they're the heavenly bodies, or the fire, or the elements, or whatever you want to have now. Hence, the effect of every cause is found to be necessary insofar as it comes under the control of providence. So that's the kind of conditional necessity, like I see Socrates sitting, therefore it's necessary that he's sitting. Is his sitting a necessary being? No. Okay? That accident is not necessary the time that he sits, but it's necessary insofar as I, uh, as I see it. So there's a kind of necessity. Well, if you consider it with providence, if God wills it, is it going to happen? Yes. 
So that's why this conditional proposition is true. If anything is foreknown by God, it will be. Not foreknowledge for God, really, but it's foreknowledge for us. And then we have this nice text in 4b. It talks about the certitude of providence itself, which cannot fail either in its effects or in the mode of occurrence that it has provided for. Sometimes this inability of providence to fail, it's called infallibility. Sometimes people complain about these words. He never says, you know, Thomas never says that providence is infallible. I don't know. Okay. Well, he says it can't fail. That's infallible. And notice the necessary and contingent fall upon being as such. Hence, the modes of contingency and necessity fall under the oversight of God as the universal provider for all of being, and not just under the oversight of certain particular providers. So it's not just us acting and arranging things, but there's a universal order, namely God. So God cannot force me to be good. Right? Such force is nonsensical. If an act is free, it's not forced. By definition, that would be a contradiction. See, God can't even do that, which is contradictory. Not only that, he can't force me to something external. He can't cause me to do something that's necessitated internal, at least uh, with respect to uh, choices between particular goods. However, God can and does cause me to be good. He doesn't cause me to sin. We can talk about that later if you want, but he causes everything in the sin except for the defect. And certainly God can cause me to be good. Generally, the basic principle you want to have is any good that I do is from God, any evil that I do is from me. Okay? Otherwise, you run into big problems. How did the Pelagians and semi-Pelagians start to attribute the first source of goodness to themselves? People like Gottschalk in the Middle Ages or some of the reformers in the 16th and 17th century start referring uh, sin to God. You can't do either. Goods from the created thing, but ultimately from God first. Defect is ultimately from the created thing. So God can cause me to be good and efficacious. Well, he can and does, assuming that I ever do anything good. You don't know me, so maybe I don't know myself. So maybe, maybe it's all part of my wicked plan. Okay. The difficulties surrounding God and human freedom often result from a misapplication of truths about the created order to God. First, the difficulty of reconciling divine foreknowledge and human foreknowledge results from a misunderstanding of how God's knowledge is eternal. Right? So, it's not future to God. That's how these things are eternally, that's how we can know them. And the difficulty of reconciling divine omnipotence with human freedom results from a misapplication of the distinction between necessity and contingency among created causes to the divine causation of creatures. So the big lesson uh, Thomas has to teach us, I think, and it's something that people after him have, in my opinion, forgotten or lost or just ignored, is not to confuse creatures with God because it causes a whole host of problems. Thank you. Thank you uh, for the talk, and now we'll enter into the kind of Q&A session. My question is, I guess I'm having a little difficulty understanding what it means for knowledge to be temporal and eternal. You can understand, like, you have, like, an object of temporal, right? I understand that. But knowledge is not, it's kind of an abstract thing, so I'm having a bit of a understanding mm -hmm. how to distinguish between temporal knowledge and eternal knowledge. So how would you, you explain that a little bit? Well, knowledge is some sort of awareness of the presence of an object in something immaterially, right? So if you think about your vision of me now in my mass, somehow the blackness of my mass is present 
comments would focus on your eye. I think we want to focus on the nervous system and the, the brain, parts of the brain. And then for Thomas, the internal senses are in the brain. So somehow, right, there's something material, there's nothing spooky and material with sensation and things. But you have a presence, an, an immaterial presence in the sense that there's something about the object that changes you that's in you. So there's something that the object is in you. That's the assimilation. And that makes you say that you can know something, or see the mask, if it's sense knowledge. Intellectual knowledge is trickier, and it's harder with singulars. But you can talk about knowing the mass or knowing. Okay, so it's some presence of the thing and the knower in an immaterial way. Not immaterial like ghosts are immaterial, or souls are immaterial, or spirits, or angels, but just that there's something about that thing, but do the same way in it. And there's an awareness. It's not just like the way it is in a, uh, no, do we have them anymore? I think so. TV uh, ladies, you know about TV ladies. It's not all through the computer lines anymore, is it? Radio ladies, right? So there's information there that makes it possible for us to uh, be aware of it. But it, it, it has to be in the thing as the thing, not just information. But for Thomas, that would be the air and the train. I can't remember if he thinks that their eyes sense the thing out and comes back. Some people have this view that when they see things, their eyes sends out beams and they come back. But uh, I don't think he has that view. But I don't know. He might know better somehow. I realize that a lot of people seem interested in optics here. <laughs> Medieval optics is a big field. I've got a nice book on the history of optics, Arabic optics, people love, but I'm just not up on it. No. So it's an assimilation. So when you say that God knows, right, there's something, everything that you're doing now, there's something corresponding to that in God. Now it's completely simple, it's very hard to imagine. But there is something a little bit like our awareness and assimilation. Now, it's very hard for us to imagine what this is like because, well, we can't. Right? You know that it's spiritual, we know there's some sort of presence, some sort of sameness, some sort of assimilation. But our knowledge of God is pretty sketchy. Um, we want to say he knows that or otherwise. There wouldn't be a good explanation of why it happens. Right? If you're causing something, presumably you know it. But how that works, that's very hard. Does that help? No, I have to think about it a little bit. Does help? Yeah. Um, I noticed on number four there's discussion of um, Boethius. I'm just curious if you can briefly. Um, I'm just curious, how close does Thomas' comport with Boethius? I think Boethius, he seems to me in the Constellation of Philosophy to focus more on the eternity. Mm -hmm. And so the eternity is more for the problem of as future. Is the future knowable? Um, I don't remember seeing in Boethius a, a much about necessity and contingency. Uh, and the infallibility of providence. Not that he denies it or anything, I just, I don't remember it being an issue there. Okay. I could be wrong. It's been a while since I've read it, but okay. it seems to me that it is a uh, eternity issue, because both come up, but they tend to come up in, in, in different contexts. I mean, this just happens to be, I like this text because Thomas brings up both of these issues and the Demalo in the same text. Um, often they're in different texts. Uh, yeah. And I think people actually draw, give less importance to that. They, they talk as if it's addressing the same problem, or as if there's you know a problem of divine knowledge and human freedom and eternity is one solution. And they aren't attentive to the issues of truth involved. And the problem is they have a notion of uh, not in abstract propositions, but judgments. 
judgments capable of being true and false at different times and being made true by beings in the world. And so as soon as you have a future contingent problem, it's not so much a problem just of knowledge and freedom, but it's a problem of truth. Yeah. I have, I guess, one quick one and then one more in-depth one. Just to double-check with the rabbits causing other rabbits, is that a necessary cause or a continuing one? Necessity, but, all, but, but, but for the most part, it's called natural necessity because there's like metaphysical necessity sometimes or logical necessity which never fails. There's your stars and heavenly bodies. They just move around in circles all the time. They don't stop. They move, but the kind of necessity below the moon that we have is, um, is uh, a lot of times things don't work out. And the rabbit, that it's from nature, right? It's not a choice or anything. And it's something that happens. Rabbits generally produce other rabbits, but occasionally it goes wrong. So it's a limited necessity, but, but then you have contingency introduced, different things happen. And so one of the sources of contingency in the sublunar realm, um, outside of free acts, is the uh, matter, the factibility of the carrier frames and the intersecting lines of design, I think. Yeah. Um, you said that Aquinas thinks that the stars are subject to the matter what? As far as where we are listening to them? Occam. I mean, I assume other people think okay. that I just thought it was very Okay. Yeah, Occam thought that they were the same, I think. Is that Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking, I mean, you're in the trouble with the Pope in the 1320s and the commentary on the, I think the text I'm thinking of are about the 1320s. So. I don't know much about the history of this. There's a book by Edward Grant called Planet, Stars, and Orbs. And he has uh, kind of exhaustive histories of views of the uh, heavenly bodies. Thomas thought that we were pretty certain that these bodies were necessary in a different manner. And that's why, because you know, going back, you see rabbits change from in and out of existence. The stars, with that record, if they go back a long time, they don't really change. So how do you explain that? It's like inference to the best explanation. Now they have very strict criteria for demonstration, so that we don't really know demonstratively that the heavenly bodies are always the same. It's called a suppositional knowledge, but 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 it's pretty good knowledge. Just not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no basically no way for us to know. Now we know it's false. So I'm glad he said that. He spends a lot of time explaining how it all works uh, for it to be. <laughs> and you realize, well, you know, this is, I mean, it's very interesting how it works. It's just false. Yeah. I, th I think false. I don't think it's just a paradigm shift. I think it's just really false. Yeah. Okay. Hang on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I was going to just mention that Anaxagoras, the Greek philosopher, one of the, the main things he taught was that the stars were made of the same stuff that we have down here. And he was very much in the minority. Yeah. And so Occam is uh, bringing the fire back. Yeah. Yeah. I had a question. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so most of the talk was on God's knowledge of our actions. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I think as this is a talk on free will, I just. This is a question I've uh, kind of been rolling over. So, you know, just think about our knowledge now of other people. Yeah. You know, I, I might go and, and think that I know my brother really well, you know, and maybe mm -hmm. I might be able to predict, you know, what he might be doing in some mm -hmm. situation. Um, I would be described that given that, you know, it's our will, so you can't give a reason for why, you know, somebody chooses this for another thing. Um, you know, what, what would it mean then to, for someone to get to know another person? Yeah, I think the wrong thing to do is to say that that's, those aren't cases of human freedom. And to say, well, then we can't, uh, we, there are only a few really free acts. Some people will go that way. That seems to be very, very wrong. I think a lot of free acts are more or less 
predictable uh, just because people more or less follow emotions or feelings or customs. You know, if they weren't, we'd be in deep trouble. Uh, and, and so you know that people are going to be in church at a certain time, right? They're in certain characters. Now that's not the kind of knowledge God has of our acts in the future. It's not uh, certain, but I think we have to rely on all the, all the time, nothing is practically uh, certain. Now the interesting thing for me is Thomas doesn't discuss this too much except when talking about the stars, the difference between groups and individuals. And so he thinks that you can pretty well predict what might happen among a group of people, or most people will do. Why? Well, remember, and this brings up what I was just saying a moment ago. Thomas thinks that most people, more or less, they're free, but they act in accordance with their feelings. Right? Most people in the Middle Ages, or most of the fathers, or even Jesus Christ himself in the New Testament, they don't think, you know, most people are basically good and do the right thing all the time. Okay. Nobody has this shit, right? I mean, Aristotle even says among Greeks, you know, there's the virtuous and the vicious. Most people are kind of incontinent, tending towards the vicious. And that's among the Greeks, who he refers to the Persians and the Celts, um, in part because of the climate. <laughs> but, but at any rate, the, um, but, so most people, that the stars will affect the climate and how people feel and things. And so you might have a war or you might know a famine's coming. And people are pretty well predictable just because those people are foolish. So the wise people don't go along with their emotions all the time that way. But pretty well what happens is the heavenly bodies and the external events, they don't affect our intellect and will, but they affect our body, our emotions are bodily, the material aspect of them, our emotions are bodily, and our desires, all of those things, and uh, yeah, you can, at least theoretically, then predict for the most part what most people will do. Okay. Not saying your brother always follows his moods and his emotions, but uh, but yeah, but that doesn't make them unfree, I think, for Thomas. It just means most people don't choose well and think about things. It doesn't mean that it's uh, somehow unfree. Yeah. Okay, so it's not really clear to me why emotional choices and people would be more easy to predict than the wise, because... Like, based on my analysis, like, the wise would have a convergent set of choices because of, like, that wisdom will, like, tend to lead in a certain direction. So, therefore, yeah. I feel like the wise would be easier to fit. But why do people choose the different things that they do? Well, um, I mean, it's situational, but... Yeah, if you know the situation, you might know this guy kind of has a genetic uh, tendency to alcoholism, or this person has a tendency to adultery. This person, just because of this person, has a tendency to get angry and blow up, and so you can kind of predict that they won't react well to a situation because this person always gets angry when this happens, or this person is always out for excitement, or this person's always looking for another drink, and or this person wants to avoid conflict because they're kind of afraid of things. And if you had enough of that, they think that you can, whereas the wise person adapts to the situation. So think, for instance, Thomas talks about the courage of a lion and the courage of a human being. So courage is a virtue, makes you perform good actions. What does this mean? It's going to be for a just cause. It's going to be reasonable in other ways. A lion, you can describe as courageous, but it's just fierce. It's going to attack. What a lion does is limited. A courageous person, you know, he's not going to be uh, burning down villages with innocent people, right? Or uh, killing civilians. 
or uh, or uh, working for some uh, warlord or something, right? But he's also not going to be afraid. And so these other people, you might be able to predict what they do from their fear or from their kind of anger or ferocity, and you can predict them. Whereas the courageous person, because they're acting on reason, it's going to differ so much from different situations, and there might be even different options. And so they're going to act in a way that their emotions by themselves cannot predict. So the behavior of a lion would be more predictable. Well, I mean, like, yeah. so the point I'm, like, kind of trying to make is, like, for yeah. instance, uh, I think, like, a good example of this is, like, designing, like, a, a machine or something. Like, so why is yeah. people design airplanes? Um, and, like, what yeah. um, and like that. And yeah. so, like, we see a convergence of, like, traits with airplanes. Like, they, yeah. they have, like, certain shape and angles on them and all of that. And because, like, when wise people do that, they know how aerodynamics works and, like, yeah. how, like the engine functions and all that. So... Like functionally speaking, because there's a limited set of like choices a wise person could take while still maintaining like wisdom, yeah. it, it seems that if you are a wise person, wise people would be easier to predict. Yeah, you could say what would the good person do in this situation? Yeah, so it's a yeah, that's a good point. I wonder if you would know who would be wise, and you would see that as less often but yeah there's there would be some there's been some predictability there where you generally rely on people with good character and expect them to act well where you wouldn't expect others to well that would seem right to me it'd be less likely to be able to predict it on the basis of purely physical causes though you'd be able to predict it because they're concerned with justice for instance so he's going to stand up to that administrator you know, out of justice, not because he always loves to fight it out with administrators, or look, he's never, he's always afraid, so he never stands up to administrators, but he's going to stand up to the administrator. So you can predict that he's going to stand up to the administrator, but it's less due to purely physical causes and more due to the fact that administrators are unjust. And this is being recorded. Some administrators are unjust. Okay. Did you see? Uh, yeah. I said, I don't know what time we got, so let's, let's begin.